Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science. So, let's get started. Well, if you listen to the show regularly, you're already possibly more tuned into what went on in the world of science this year than the average person on the street, but we can't cover it all. So we wanted to start off the new year with a look back at the major publications, discoveries, accomplishments, and events that involve science this year. Now, if you've ever perused the magazine section at your favorite store, you've probably noticed the magazine called Discover. Now, Discover Magazine was founded by Time Magazine back in 1980 as a way of delivering science to educated non-scientists. Now, this happened because Time noticed that their articles on science were always popular with the public, and so they thought a full-length monthly magazine about science could be successful. And I guess they're right, because it's still on the market after 40 years. Discover Magazine was eventually sold to the Disney Corporation, but they later sold it to other companies. But now Discover Magazine is published by a smaller company located in Wisconsin. Anyway, at the end of every year, Discover Magazine publishes their list of the top 50 most important scientific stories of the year. And I thought that you might be interested in hearing them. Now, to save time and legal entanglements, I won't read the articles to you, but rather I thought I would summarize these top 50 stories supplement them with some other information, and perhaps editorialize a little bit. Now, 50 science stories, that's a lot, so we definitely won't get through them all this week. But channeling David Letterman, I guess, we'll start with the 50th, and therefore the least momentous story, and work up from that. And as you hear these 50 stories, see if you can guess what the top science story is. Or can you guess what the top 10 science stories are? Or the top 5? Well, hang on, I'll get you there. Are you ready? Number 50 is a story about a shipworm that apparently eats through rock. Shipworms are a type of clam, but without the shell. And what they normally do is eat through the wood of old naval ships, and they cause havoc to piers and docks that are made out of wood. They sort of look like a smaller version of that worm you might have seen in the movie Dune. Now, they discovered these rock-boring worms, though, underwater in the Philippines, and what they're learning is really messing up what zoologists thought they knew about shipworms. Shipworms don't just eat wood. Number 49. A massive, fossilized jawbone was dug up in Kenya back in the 1970s, but was recently rediscovered in a museum this year. And researchers realize that it belongs to a new species of now-extinct meat-eating mammal. Now, this animal was giant. It's the size of a polar bear. And drawings of it that I've seen make it look like it's a large cat. But I think it's in a different group than the felines. I think this species went extinct like 10 million years ago. And it kind of belongs to its own class. I think the main reason paleontologists had neglected this fossil for the last 50 years was because it was so big, 
It wouldn't fit into the museum drawers like all the other feline fossils. It was sort of tucked away somewhere else in the museum until someone actually realized it was there and began examining it. Number 48. Researchers at Duke and Yale this year were able to grow blood vessels in the lab. They took cells from the bodies of donated cadavers, isolated blood vessel cells, and then grew them on this artificial but biodegradable mesh scaffold that they could eventually eliminate so that the cells would grow into a tube. They think this could be a viable way of supplying artery and blood vessels to patients in the future. Number 47. In July of 2019, researchers spotted a giant raft of sargassum seaweed growing in the Gulf of Mexico, and it stretches all the way across the Atlantic Ocean to Africa. This big mass was first sighted in satellite photos back in 2011, and it's now called the Great Atlantic Sargassum Belt. It's some 5,500 miles long. Now, if you've ever swam in the Gulf of Mexico, you've probably seen this seaweed. It's large and brown with lots of empty bladders about the size of marbles. These bladders are full of air, and that helps the algae float on top of the water. No one knows why the Great Atlantic Sargassum Belt developed, but they speculate that it could be due to nutrient runoff from land, like from farmland or urban areas or maybe tropical forests that have been deforested. could be due to ocean upwelling of nutrients. It could be due to climate change. Or, of course, it could be a combination of those things. Who knows? Number 46 has to do with geology. Australian geologists have developed a new model for predicting when the Earth's crust first formed. They used radioactive decay rates and they used heat production data to predict that the first continents, the first land, formed on Earth about 4 billion years ago, which is only about 600 million years after the formation of the planet Earth. This is quite a bit earlier than previously predicted. Number 45. A paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine this year reported on a new way of discovering hidden consciousness in the brains of comatose patients. And remarkably, it just used an EEG, which is an electroencephalogram, that every hospital already has. It doesn't require any new fancy equipment. They figured out how to use an EEG to look for subtle signs of consciousness in people who are in comas due to brain damage. This means that patients that are comatose, but who are still aware, could be better identified and better treated. This technique with the EEG is better than using an MRI, which is the popular way of doing this sort of thing now. An MRI looks at blood flow through the brain. And while an MRI is a one-time snapshot of brain activity, an EEG can be continuously monitoring the patient at bedside to examine how their consciousness changes over time. So if patients are coming in and out of consciousness at different times, this technique will pick up on it. Number 44 is about an ancient fossil of fungi that was identified this year in the Canadian Arctic. This is the oldest fungus known to Earth, living 900 million years ago to up to maybe a billion years ago. That's 500 million years older than previously discovered fungal fossils. Now, these fossils are small, only a tenth of a millimeter, but they classify it as a fungus because it has chitin in their cell walls. 
So for a billion years now, this fungus has been among us, but it's not humongous. Story number 43 was about rainfall in the United States. The first half of 2019 was the wettest year on record, period. The wettest year on record. Between July of 2018 and June of 19, the U.S. received almost 38 inches of rainfall or snow, which is 8 inches above normal. This meant that farmers couldn't plant their crops on time this spring, for instance. Now, the wettest parts of the country were the central and northeastern states, which includes Kentucky. I'm recording this on December 28, 2019, and here in Louisville, we normally would have gotten 45 inches of rain up to December 28, but so far we've actually received 52 inches. That's 7 inches more rainfall this year compared to average. That's a 16% increase. Now, the Pacific Northwest and the Florida Peninsula have actually received below average rainfall this year. So it depends on where you are. Number 42. Astronomers have discovered a long ribbon of water ice on the surface of Titan, which is the largest moon orbiting Saturn. Titan's atmosphere is very hazy, so they had to analyze photographs of the moon's surface in a different way here. But basically, this analysis allowed them to discover all of this ice. It's a long strip of ice, about 30% longer than the width of the United States. It's huge. This ice might be there due to volcanic eruptions of ice called cryovolcanoes. Number 41. The definition of a kilogram has been changed. Up to now, the weight of a kilogram was defined as the weight of a liter of water. But there were problems with this because they had to design blocks of platinum that weighed exactly one kilogram, and these platinum standards had to be carefully stored and maintained in underground vaults in Paris. And the problem with this platinum standard is that it can get damaged or oxidized in time. It's just what happens to metals. Scientists have been looking for a more mathematical definition of a kilogram, Sort of like what they did with the meter back in 1983. The exact length of a meter now is tied to the speed of light, which is a number that never changes. They wanted that kind of thing with the kilogram. Now, one kilogram could be officially calculated using another unchanged physical value. It's the energy of a photon, which is a flash of light, called Planck's constant. This may seem trivial, but it's actually important because our entire economy involves buying and selling commodities based on their weight. And even a little bit of inaccuracy in how we weigh things can have a huge impact on trade. And all of the scales that we use throughout the world to measure the weight of things are ultimately calibrated with these standards. Number 40. Elon Musk is back in the news. He's announced the development of an electronic chip that can be implanted into the brain to help paraplegics walk and possibly allow for telepathic communication between people or people and machines like your cell phone. Did you catch that? Elon Musk wants to put chips into people's brains so they can talk directly to their cell phone. Now, Musk is known for other innovations like the Tesla automobile, the SpaceX rocket ship, and an underground boring machine that he hopes to use to deliver high-speed transportation in the future. Apparently, Musk's new company called Neuralink has already successfully implanted these chips into the brains of monkeys, 
And they are now asking permission from the FDA to begin human trials next year. Oh boy, I'm getting in line for that trial. Number 39 of our top 50 science stories of the year. Researchers in Copenhagen have used the tooth of a 1.7 million year old fossilized rhinoceros to test the idea of studying molecular evolution using protein sequence rather than DNA sequence. Most researchers these days use DNA sequence to study evolution, but the problem with that is that DNA is not always as pervasive or long-lasting like proteins are, especially if you talk about proteins like collagen or tooth enamel. So these researchers are examining the protein composition of both fossils and living organisms to see if they can use that as a way of developing more accurate evolutionary trees. Number 38. If you've seen the late Stephen Hawking, the physicist, use prosthetics in order to speak, you know that it's a challenge to help people who can't talk to be able to communicate orally. Researchers are experimenting with the idea of inserting electrodes into that part of the brain that controls speech and correlating changes in that part of the brain with speech. But results have been very mixed up to now. But there's a neurosurgeon at UC San Francisco who's been taking a different approach. His lab is focusing more on the part of the brain controlling the motor skills to move the parts of the body that actually produce words. The lips, the tongue, the jaw, the larynx. And he's using artificial intelligence to try to correlate neural activity in those parts of the brain with the formation of specific words. Right now, he's trying to train computers to recognize the neural signals in those parts of the brain that signify different words, and it's gone pretty good. So far, he's about 70% accurate. This research could really give a voice to the speechless in the future. Number 37 concerns the mystery surrounding the water that apparently used to flow on the planet Mars. There's a lot of evidence of large bodies of water on Mars, very wide rivers as recently as a billion years ago. The Earth is about 4.5 billion years ago, so a billion years ago is really fairly recent. But the question is, where did all that water go and how? A recent paper reviewed this question, and the bottom line is, whatever the answer, it'll be weird, and that's my word, but whatever the answer is, it's really going to change the current understanding of Martian hydrology. Number 36 is about a 99-million-year-old bird leg preserved in tree amber that was collected in Burma. This ancient and now extinct bird had a very unusual leg. Its third toe was extremely elongated, almost twice the length of the other toes, and there are strange bristles on the toe. It's thought that maybe this long toe helped the bird hunt or forage for food, but it really did surprise ornithologists. Sort of gave them the finger, you know. Number 35 is about anorexia nervosa. This is an eating disorder that tricks people into thinking they're overweight, even when they actually have extremely low body weights. Worldwide anorexia causes the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric disease. Here in the U.S., anorexia mostly afflicts white upper-to-middle-class teenage girls and only 30% of those afflicted with anorexia nervosa actually recover. Well, there has been an effort to see if there are any genes associated with anorexia nervosa. 
Researchers are looking at the chromosomal DNA of 17,000 different anorexia patients and compare that to the DNA of 55,000 people without the condition. Researchers so far have identified eight areas of the human genome that appear to be most associated with anorexia. Some of these loci had previously been shown to be involved in things like anxiety disorder, depression, and OCD, obsessive-compulsive disorder. Other parts of the genome of anorexics appear to be associated with a decrease in the likelihood of type 2 diabetes and a decrease in high body mass index and lower metabolic rates. This research appears to back up what patients with anorexia and their parents have long insisted that the problem is not just about how much people eat. It's a very complex disease, and it now appears that genetics might play some role in it. Number 34 is about earthquakes. Seismologists have often been able to detect small foreshocks before larger earthquakes. These are small rumblings. But these foreshocks were only there maybe 10 to 50% of the time. This year, though, seismologists developed a new way of analyzing the data where they could more effectively eliminate background noise, like highway traffic, construction noises, etc., This was in Southern California. Once they did that, they realized that there are actually a lot more tiny tremors in Southern California than they used to think. On average, there's one small tremor every three minutes. With this kind of approach, the researchers realized that they were observing foreshocks prior to 72% of main shocks instead of just 10 to 50%. So this groundbreaking research... uh, give scientists another tool to better understand that's causing these earthquakes. Number 33 is about a new technique for assessing gene expression in specific tissues. This could be very helpful in assessing gene activity in specific tissues and organs of experimental organisms, because instead of grinding the organism or organ, the researcher would be able to study what's going on in specific tissue layers using a microscope. To me, though, it seems this is a pretty theoretical idea, and I think it's probably got a long ways to go before it's really going to be practical. Number 32. Did you know honeybees can count? Yeah, researchers designed a system of boxes and tunnels that required honeybees to make simple mathematical calculations like addition and subtraction, and it worked. There's a couple other research groups that published papers this year that showed that honeybees do understand numerical symbols and they can count and use concepts like more than, less than, and zero. Pretty amazing. Number 31, a new antidepressant is on the market. It was approved by the FDA in March. It's called Aketamine and it'll be marketed as Spravato. Spravato is going to be a nasal spray, and it represents the biggest advance in fighting depression in the last 30 years. Now, ketamine has been used as anesthetic for years, and it was a popular club drug in the 1980s and 90s. It was called Special K back then. And whereas traditional antidepressants can take months before they start working in the body and still might only help a third of the people taking them, Eketamine works within a few hours by, quote, awakening dormant neural machinery and enhancing neural connections, unquote, said one researcher. 
I should tell you, though, that Spravato received what they call fast-track approval from the FDA, and some critics are saying that it hasn't shown to be overwhelmingly effective. For instance, in two of three trials, each one was only a month long, the medicine only outperformed the placebo once out of three trials. And side effects from ecatamine include sleepiness, dizziness, anxiety, and higher blood pressure. The drug's price is $32,000 a year, and it's still unclear whether insurance companies will actually cover the cost of this new medicine. Number 30 in our list of 50 top science stories of the year is about LawSeq. That's L-A-W-S-E-Q. LawSeq. LawSeq is a three-year, $2 million attempt to build a legal foundation for genomic medicine. Now, our genome is the collection of DNA in each of our bodies. Of course, unless you're an identical twin, your genome is truly unique. And your genome has huge implications for your health. That's probably why some 26 million people have paid out of pocket to have their genomes examined using direct-to-consumer DNA testing companies like the company called 23andMe. But how is all this genomic information used? LawSeq is helping address that. LawSeq is examining the extent to which physicians use all of this newly available genomic data about their patients. Let me give you a couple of interesting examples of cases that have already come up to help demonstrate the challenge of genomic medicine for physicians and scientists. There was a 16-year-old boy that died in 2010. He died of a rare heart condition that had just been diagnosed in the boy's father two years prior to that, 2008. Well, the boy's family thought that since the doctor knew about the father's genetic disease, he should have really had both the father and the son's DNA examined more carefully. And it turns out the boy had inherited the mutated gene from his father, and after he died from it, the family sued the doctor. In 2015, a judge agreed with the family, and the doctor did lose the case. The judge decided the doctor had a responsibility to the offspring of the father. In another case, there was a woman in California who was prescribed a medication for preventing seizures. The problem with this drug, though, is that there is often a devastating skin reaction in patients of Asian descent. Well, the doctor who had prescribed the drug never actually met the patient face-to-face because apparently they consulted by email, which kind of surprises me. But there was a lawsuit in the case. The case went into arbitration where it was settled, but the outcome has not been made public. But it does bring up the question of whether physicians need to know the racial ethnic makeup of their patients, which might mean looking at their DNA. So far, there have been about 200 medical lawsuits like these, and that's what LawSeq is trying to address. LawSeq's final report's not out yet, and maybe that'll be the big news next year. There's also the question about legal responsibilities of researchers who study people's genomes. My students and I have done this. We've collected DNA from human volunteers and examined specific genes in their genome. Well, what are our responsibilities to those volunteers? Now, research involving human subjects is supposed to be kept confidential, and to reduce bias, the researcher typically doesn't even know whose DNA they happen to be examining on any one gel. 
But what if the scientist does happen to discover an aberrant sequence in a test subject's DNA? Do they have a moral and legal responsibility to inform the test subject? Well, fortunately, in April of this year, the American Society of Human Genetics published guidelines for researchers who are in that situation. Science story number 29 has to do with a molecule called helium hydride. Basically, helium hydride is composed of a helium atom and a single proton from the smallest known chemical element, hydrogen. Now, it's long been believed that this molecule, helium hydride, might have been the first molecule to be created by the Big Bang, which occurred some 14 billion years ago. But the problem is that no one has actually been able to find helium hydride anywhere in our current universe. But in April of this year, a group of astronomers claimed to have finally found signs of helium hydride. It was in a planetary nebula that is located some 3,000 light years from Earth. Now, to find this molecule, they used an observatory called SOFIA. SOFIA is a Boeing 747 airplane that carries a reflecting telescope that is some 8 feet wide, and it flies in the upper stratosphere. You're talking 40 to 45,000 feet above sea level. At this elevation, most of the infrared blocking atmosphere of the Earth is gone. So SOFIA can study the infrared energies emitted by the cosmos, and that led researchers to be able to detect helium hydride from so far away. Number 28, mathematics. Well, a mathematician at Emory University appears to have solved a problem that has perplexed computer scientists for decades. The problem has to do with Boolean functions, which deal with multiple binary inputs, zeros and ones, for instance. It's like yes and no. This is how transistors and computers work. But there's always been this issue, apparently, of what scientists call sensitivity. It has to do with the number of inputs needed to change an output. Well, this mathematician started with an idea that was speculated about almost 30 years ago and applied some linear algebra techniques to make it work. He posted the solution online, and it reportedly took the mathematics and computer science worlds by storm. And our final story for this episode of the Top 50 Science News Stories is number 27, the return of measles. This year, the U.S. experienced the largest outbreak of measles since 1992. Now, measles is the most contagious virus known, and just one person coughing or sneezing can spray millions of tiny viruses that can remain airborne and infectious for up to two hours. So if someone else comes into the room where these viruses are floating around and they're exposed to these viral particles, and if they've not been vaccinated, they are probably going to come down with the disease. Measles was almost eliminated in the U.S. by the year 2000, but now people are not getting vaccinated as much because of unsubstantiated fears about the safety risks of the vaccine. Now, we did extensive stories on measles back in February 18 and May 6 of 2019. Check out our podcast for those stories. But the rule of thumb is if 95% of a population has been vaccinated, then the other 5% are relatively safe because the odds of them being exposed is so low. They call that herd immunity. But what's happening now is that there are pockets of people around the country that are dipping below that 95% vaccination rate. 
The biggest outbreaks of measles have been in New York, New Jersey, Washington State, and California. As of November 2019, there were 1,261 illnesses across 31 different states due to measles infections. Measles cases are surging around the world too, though, not just in the United States. The worst places for measles outbreaks this year were Madagascar, the Ukraine, India, the Philippines, Samoa, Congo, and Uganda. Well, that's our show today. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, the Week in Science. To listen to any of our older episodes, just go to forwardradio.org or check out our Facebook page. Now, this show is broadcast on Forward Radio every Monday at 7.30 p.m., that's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMP 106.5 FM, your grassroots volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station here in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.